So what I find in the paper is that among people who voted in the Democratic primary, those higher in authoritarianism tended to vote for Hillary Clinton, while those lower in authoritarianism tended to vote for Bernie Sanders. And with this consistent result, there's a couple questions. Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Most of us know how to identify authoritarian leaders, but in today's interview, I talk about how to define authoritarianism among voters and the relevance of new findings that show a difference between the authoritarianism of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton supporters. I'm talking to Julie Ronsky, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Mississippi and author of a new paper, A Tale of Two Democrats, How Authoritarianism Divides the Democratic Party. Hi, Julie. Hi, Chris. We're here to talk about your new paper on authoritarianism. And let's start by talking about what it is. We're talking about lowercase authoritarianism here. How would you describe that? Correct. So when we think about authoritarianism with that lowercase a, what we're really thinking about are individual personality traits and dispositions, how people in the electorate are thinking about the structures of government, how they're thinking about the parties and the coalitions that form the structure of their society. And so when we think about measuring authoritarianism or thinking about what authoritarianism is in those terms, what it really boils down to is a personal disposition and preference for having order and structure and conformity in society versus taking a more independent, autonomous approach to life. So you're saying that if there's a hierarchical structure in that society in any place, whether it's a hierarchy between parents and children or a hierarchy between police officers and civilians, people who are relatively high on lowercase authoritarianism were probably more likely to say people who are lower in the hierarchy should be obedient? Correct. So it's also thinking about accepting the structure for what it is, if it's hierarchical, uh, what that hierarchy looks like, and saying, yes, we're good with the way the structure is set up. We're very happy with it. We're conforming to it. We are accepting the norms that are set up in place, and we're willing to give in to what those group norms are as opposed to, say, maybe being a little more deviant or a little more disobedient and, say, bucking those norms and protesting them. So why has authoritarianism uh, traditionally been associated with Republicans and conservatives? So the main reason for this, and one that a lot of the old school kind of uh, take on this, is that Authoritarianism works by connecting people with issues and connecting people specifically with a lot of social issues and policies that have relationships to moral traditionalism. So we could think about these as the culture wars. To what extent are people supporting things like abortion or gay marriage or even things like racial uh, rights? And so This link between authoritarianism and conservatism and the Republican Party really is stemmed from authoritarians who tend to hold on to these existing structures and norms 
And these existing structures and norms tend to be conservative and tend to be the policy positions of the right and the Republican Party. What motivated you to look at authoritarianism within each party? So a lot of the motivation, especially in our recent paper, is in the context of 2016. And this narrative, especially within American politics, is that authoritarianism works in our society because it splits people across the parties, where people high in these authoritarian dispositions tend to be more conservative, tend to be more Republican. People lower in authoritarianism tend to be more liberal, tend to be more Democrat. And what this story basically sets up is that, okay, you only are going to see this trait working when you only look at Republicans. And in the case of 2016, a lot of the narrative focused on that, and specifically within the context of Donald Trump. And multiple research articles and journalist outlets talked about how the rise of Trump really coincided with this activation of authoritarian traits within the electorate. And my motivation was to take a step back and say, well, is that really the full story? Within American society, we don't just have one Republican Party, we have two parties. And is the story simply that Republicans and Democrats are not seeing eye to eye on this trait? Or is it possible that maybe there's some variation within both parties? And that was the motivation for starting to look at Democrats and to starting to ask the question of, well, is it possible that maybe there are some high authoritarians who are in the Democratic Party, and maybe there is variance in this trait that has some meaningful uh, contributions to how we think about voting behavior among Democrats? 2016 was a very unusual year. If we went back to a previous decade, let's say the 1960s, the 1950s, do you think there was any previous decade in which you would find a similar division between supporters of one primary candidate and another primary candidate on this dimension? Sure. So this is actually one of the interesting things about why authoritarianism actually has divided people across the parties. If we do go back to, say, the 1950s or 60s, what we actually see is two parties who aren't actually very ideologically distinct from one another. So if we're going back to, say, the Eisenhower era or the LBJ era, we're seeing a Democratic Party that has both Northern liberals and Dixiecrats. So we have that variation, uh, at least the policy level, within the party itself. And we'd have a similar case among Republicans as well from that era. And a lot of the literature that even looks at, say, legislative politics and congressional politics, they realize that back in this era, both parties were kind of more alike when it came to ideological policies. So in that era, we would ex actually expect authoritarianism to work more powerfully dividing people within a party than it would, say, to divide people across parties. And I would say the best example is this, if we would think back to, say, a civil rights era Democratic Party, we would expect something like authoritarianism to divide, say, the Dixiecrats from the rest of the Democratic Party. And it's only in the past, say, 30 to 40 years that Republic, you know, the Southern Dixiecrats have sorted into the Republican Party and that we now have this big polarization gap between Republicans and Democrats that we actually see differences across the parties in authoritarianism. 
And do you feel like that divides whites and blacks and Asians and Hispanics altogether? Or do you feel like there's a race effect here? I mean, I know there was race was a factor in your paper. Sure. Well, and one of the things that has been really tricky with studying authoritarianism in the American context is, again, thinking about a, a trait that thinks about obedience and structure and applying that to society at large and asking whether this trait works the same for the dominant group in society, which would be whites, versus the non-dominant groups in society, which would be African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, the other groups you mentioned. And that's been somewhat of a debate within the political science and uh, social psychology world, trying to figure out, well, can authoritarianism actually validly work when we're asking people who don't belong to the dominant group. So where we're at is basically the literature respond to this by only looking at whites and saying, well, what we know about authoritarianism splitting across the parties is what we see among whites. One thing that my paper does slightly differently, especially because we're looking at Democrats, is to say, well, let's look at whites, but also look at non-whites. And we take the approach that for non-whites, they are members of the Democratic Party. They may have been voting for the Democratic Party for decades. This is a government social structure that they seem pretty comfortable with. So we're able to actually take race a little bit out of the question by saying that instead of focusing at society at large, we're focusing on a political social group that non-whites might actually respect or might actually feel conformity towards. So you're saying in the American case, as opposed to the case in maybe several other countries, is just is unique because there's one ethnic group that's loyal to the Democratic Party and loyalty within that group is to some degree based on authoritarianism. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that. I would say that for certain historical reasons, uh, a lot of and policy reasons, uh, many minority groups have found a home in the Democratic Party more so than the Republican Party. As a result, when we're starting to look at how authoritarianism works among these non-white ethnic groups, we'd expect them to work better with the party that they belong to rather than the party they don't belong to. So when it comes to religiosity, and this is related to the issue of race here, I know that African Americans tend on average to be a little more religiously conservative. Correct. Do you think that's a, that's partly a factor too? Because I know there's some work in social psychology saying that some people, well, traditionally religious people tend to believe more in a fearful God than a merciful God. So there is more of a hierarchical relationship between God and humans in that uh, theological universe. So do you think that's a, an authority relationship that is found at the personal level if you're socialized to be to think of that authority relationship at the religious level? Most definitely. And I, I would say that these are all kind of correlated together. So a lot of the earlier work on authoritarianism tried to figure out, well, what are the, what are the life uh, choices or what are the environmental factors that relate to authoritarianism? 
And typically what has been found with authoritarianism is that they people who score high in authoritarianism tend to be very much more religious and tend on average to have lower amounts of education. So in term, not saying that these things are causally related to one another, but saying if someone happens to have these perceptions of obedience and uh, submission to hierarchical authority, they also tend to have less education and they also tend to have more religiosity. So if we think about the case of African-Americans, if we look at a lot of the data, especially, say, American national election studies, on average, African-Americans do tend to be more authoritarian than whites. And this is across multiple data sets since uh, authoritarianism has been regularly measured. So with that said, I would definitely agree religion and education are factors, but they're all maybe related to the underlying either psychological experience or the underlying personal socialization experience. As you said yourself, you know, the church going experience and the fearful God experience, they might be all tied in together. And when you're talking about this older literature, are you talking about work from Europe in the 1940s and 50s? I'm actually so I'm actually talking about work by Bob Altemeyer from the 1980s. And he uses a different version of authoritarianism than I do, but he really set it set out to figure out well what causes this trait to emerge. And he looked at college students and he looked at people at different age points. And a lot of his work from the 1980s is kind of what set the stage for us to understand that, okay, things like education and religion matter. And then other work, particularly uh, the work by Karen Stenner in the mid-2000s, really expounded upon this and further teased apart sort of these underlying correlates what that we would expect to see when we find someone who is high in authoritarianism. This is a good point to talk about measuring authoritarianism then. Tell me about how you measured it and what we know about this measure. Sure. So the way I measure authoritarianism, uh, which is very consistent with how uh, most political scientists and political scientists studying American politics do it, is we ask people about raising their children. We ask people to start thinking about traits that they think are important for a child to have. Maybe it's their own child, or maybe it's children in society in general. And in these survey items, as we ask people to think about traits that are important for children to have, usually the way this is set up, uh, say in a survey uh, like the ANES, we would give respondents a dichotomous choice. We would present two traits and ask someone to pick which one of those two traits would be the most important for a child to have. So these pairs of traits would include things like good manners versus independence, uh, obedience versus self-reliance, and uh, being considerate versus well-behaved. So we would ask them four pairs of traits. Uh, People would respond with which trait they think is more important for a child to have. And from there, we create uh, an additive scale that measures the extent to which people are preferring these more obedient, well-mannered, structured traits in children versus 
preferring the more self-reliant, independent, free-thinking traits. That's what I've used in my paper and in many of the studies that looked at the 2016 election and looking at support for Donald Trump also use this measure. Would it be fair to say that among political scientists, that's now the norm? I would definitely say among uh, American politics scholars, that is the norm. I think within, uh, at least in some of the European and Australian, New Zealand scholars, uh, there is still a little bit of reliance on Altemeyer's old right-wing authoritarianism scale. Uh, but among the American politics scholars, I think we are, are mostly on the same page of using these child-rearing traits. I know that in social psychology at the moment, people like Jared Crawford are trying to disentangle right-wing authoritarianism from social dominance orientation. Correct. So they typically use the older right-wing authoritarian scale. And some of the interesting work there is that right-wing authoritarians, when you separate things that way, they're more interested in suppressing people who are weird or deviant and disobey norms, whereas people who are high in social dominance orientation tend to be upset when people who are lower in the hierarchy rise in the hierarchy. That's an interesting contrast, but I know that does not use the child-rearing measure. Correct. So the right-wing authoritarianism measure gets at three constructs. It gets at submission, aggression, and a conventionalism. And with the child rearing, while it correlates highly with the RWA scale as a whole, these child rearing questions are really getting at the submission aspects of authoritarianism. So to what extent are you going to submit to the norms of the authority? To what extent are you going to submit to what your society is telling you to do? So it makes sense that we would see the issues with backlash against deviance, because fundamentally, that's what authoritarianism is. It's about conforming and submitting to what the group or what your society is telling you to do. And when you realize that there's someone threatening this norm or threatening the stability of the structure, then you're going to start lashing out. Whereas SDO is thinking about the structure and basically saying, well, where should people be in terms of equality versus hierarchy? And just a general preference for saying, yes, our society should have a hierarchical structure versus it shouldn't. And then the downstream political ramifications of that preference. And there's a moderate correlation between those two. And that partly explains why they tend to uh, politically form a coalition of conservatives. Yes. Well, and especially if you think about a coalition of conservatives wanting to both preserve traditional norms of a society and when those norms of society are hierarchically based. What I would, well, and what I would argue with authoritarianism, the structure of the group might not necessarily matter, or the content of the group might not necessarily matter. What's important about authoritarianism is the obedience and the submission. And this is an interesting point where we see how authoritarianism works in places like Eastern Europe. So what's interesting is those higher in authoritarianism in places like the former Soviet Union and its breakaway countries is that people higher in authoritarianism actually are more preferable for communist economic structures. Because for them, what is the traditional social norm of the group is the old structures of the USSR. 
Whereas people who are lower in authoritarianism in these Eastern European countries were more comfortable with, say, capitalist policies. But in a place like the U.S. or Western Europe, the opposite is true. Those who are higher in authoritarianism tend to pick up the economic preferences of the right. They tend to pick up the economic preferences of the group that they belong to or the group that they know is structuring their norms. So with authoritarianism, it's really about the group you're submitting to, not necessarily because that group has a hierarchy, whereas SDO really is about the group having a hierarchy. So that speaks to the fact that you really need to know a country's political history before you start working on this issue. Exactly. Yeah, you need to understand what are the norms and what should people be obedient towards. But it also, coming back to my work, it also opens up the possibility to see authoritarianism work among a democratic party or among parties on the left, to the extent that the democratic party does have a different set of norms and a different set of preferences. If people are still equally committed to that group, they should be defending those norms and practices. Um, Well, looking at primaries, do you think we're going to see this result again with two Democratic candidates? Has it happened recently in the past? But more importantly, going forward, are we going to see it again in the future? So what I find in the paper is that among people who voted in the Democratic primary, those higher in authoritarianism tended to vote for Hillary Clinton, while those lower in authoritarianism tended to vote for Bernie Sanders. And with this consistent result, there's a couple questions. So first, what caused this? Is this something idiosyncratic about these two candidates? You know, if you think about authoritarianism as obedience to the norms and the system as it's been, well, Hillary Clinton really embodies the brand of the Democratic Party and the history of the Democratic Party over the past 30 years. She is the establishment. She is the norm. Whereas Bernie Sanders comes in and he's still an independent in Congress. He comes in and says he's a democratic socialist. And he really is just quickly adopting the democratic label as needed for this primary campaign. So we just have two candidates who really, for their own personal reasons, kind of tap into, on one hand, the establishment traditionalism on one hand versus this unorthodox newcomer, very far left, uh, talking about economic inequality position. And the question is, number one, would the Democratic Party have two candidates that different again? and you know, if that's the case, that would be a prime way to start looking at how authoritarianism works on the left. Is it possible that we found these results because Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are so unique? Or did we find this result because there really is something going on with Democrats where there might be some underlying intra-party divisions between establishment norms versus an unorthodox, more progressive agenda? And I'm both myself, my co-authors, we are hoping that our paper spurs a lot of these questions and conversations, and we really hope that future research goes down this path. I know that we're interested in seeing how 2020 will start shaking out in terms of who the Democrats start fielding. And we also know that in 2018, we've had a few congressional primaries that 
pick establishment candidates versus non-traditional Democratic candidates? So it's an open question, but I think it's a very interesting question. Yeah, I think when you look back, there's definitely this wing of the political left that's substantially lower on authoritarianism than the rest. And in the 2000 election, you can see them voting for Nader. And in the early 2010s, you can see them in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And some of those people may not have voted Democratic. Uh, They may have either stood out the election or voted for the Green Party. And I think you saw them moving to uh, Bernie Sanders in 2016. And they may again move away and vote Green Party. And it's also in past elections, the uh, Democratic Party hasn't really put out that different of candidates uh, on this dimension. So if you go back to 2008, if you think about Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, they're both seen as somewhat establishment. They're following the traditional path in terms of the policies and way they talk about governing. They're all pretty much your standard Democrat establishment. There's no one. There's nothing that's really distinct in the same way that Bernie Sanders was a very distinct choice than Hillary Clinton. Right. If I recall correctly, I think Hillary's and Obama's positions in 2008 were about 97% identical. (laughs) I think so. And I know at least, and then from the voters' perspective in terms of, say, ideological placement of the candidates, they're fairly similar as well. So why do you think this paper is relevant to people outside political science, either in other social sciences or just in the public? So um, I'll start with why it would be relevant to, say, uh, other academics other than political scientists. So I know, especially within social psychology, there's a lot of interest and even, I think, probably going back to the 1960s or 70s, thinking about, well, how can authoritarianism uh, work on the left? You know, there's a reason why Altemeyer's scale is called right-wing authoritarianism, so for these for people who are thinking about how does authoritarianism and con- and these kind of obedient conformity traits work on the left this might provide an avenue to start thinking about that. This paper might suggest that okay there are ways that authoritarians can exert their own preferences and their own dispositional traits on the left and It's important when we see this, say, on a left side party, especially when there's internal divisions in party. So for all of these scholars who have always been curious about trying to identify left wing authoritarianism, this might provide an avenue to start thinking about how to strategically tap into that or starting to think about how authoritarianism could work on the left, where authoritarianism might not necessarily be completely about traditional uh, social conservative issue preferences. It could simply be a, a conformity to establishment norms that have been on the left side of the aisle. And then uh, for a non-political science, say practitioner or journalist, journalism audience, I think this paper is extremely important for anyone who is thinking about the future of the Democratic Party. And as the Democratic Party has to start thinking about which candidates to field in 2020, I think this paper is an important lesson of how what you know 2016 worked and how when you have two different candidates that divide people across fundamental uh, psychological traits, you don't uh, actually generate a consensus behind your party's candidate. 
So I think this is an important lesson for people who are thinking about the Democratic Party and their choice of candidates and saying that you really need to think about authoritarianism and you really need to think about the ways in which members of your own party can be fundamentally divided between candidates you choose to field. So if Democrats are thinking about success in 2020, they need to think about a candidate that might unite their members over the authoritarian dimension rather than divide their members over the authoritarian dimension. So before we wrap up, uh, you mentioned Karen Stenner and Robert Altemeyer as scholars from earlier decades. As far as people doing research on authoritarianism right now, are there any scholars whose work you'd recommend? So I know that Mark Hetherington, he had a book come out in 2009 with Jonathan Weiler uh, about authoritarian, uh, polar American authoritarian polarization. It's an excellent book. And I know he and uh, Weiler are coming out with a new book next month called Prius or Pickup, which again uses the four child rearing questions and then uses those to explain the psychology behind uh, American polarization and uh, politics more currently. So that would be an excellent place for people to think about authoritarianism, especially in a non-academic practical way. I also know that uh, people like Stanley Feldman and Christopher Federico are also doing some excellent work thinking about authoritarianism in the context of the 21st century and how authoritarianism is structured vote choice. Um, and I believe they're trying to move away from just looking at whites only to looking at how does authoritarianism work across all ethnic and racial groups in America? And I know that they have some working papers and possibly a book manuscript in the works for some time in the future. Well, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's been great having you and uh, good luck with this research. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. You can follow Julie on Twitter at Julie underscore Ronsky. Her last name is spelled W-R-O-N-S-K-I. Her new paper is titled A Tale of Two Democrats, How Authoritarianism Divides the Democratic Party. She shares first authorship with Alexa Bankert at the University of Georgia, and the other authors on the paper are Karen Amira from the College of Charleston, April A. Johnson from Kennesaw State University, and Lindsay C. Levitin from Shepherd University. You can find links to the paper and to some of the books that Julie mentioned in the show notes for today's episode. My next guest is Charlotta Stern, a sociologist who has questioned the conventional wisdom about gender in sociology and gender studies. Charlotta was one of the first people to join Heterodox Academy, and she's a research fellow at the Swedish Institute for Social Research. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.